NFL show on the Grilling True Sports Network. We are brought to you, as always, by PathImpurity.direct, the highest-grade CBD out there. You put a capsule under your tongue. It dissolves in a couple minutes and goes immediately into your bloodstream and re-releases over 12 hours, time releases. Make sure you check them out at PathImpurity.direct because right now they got a special two months for the price of one. So that's two months of CBD, the highest-quality CBD you can get for just $75. I am your host, Mike Goodpastor. Right now, I'd like to welcome in my co-host, as always, Sam Teets. How you doing, Sam? I'm doing great, Mike. How about you? All right. And today, we're going to talk about the 10 NFL, the 10 greatest NFL players with their careers cut short by injury or, on my list, by death. Yeah, that's considered being injured, right, Sam? So, when we look at this, I mean, there's a lot of guys here that, probably could have been Hall of Famers and maybe even more than that, like legendary all-time players, if not for injuries. So I always like to talk about these guys because a lot of these guys are guys that you don't really hear much about anymore. You know, I think your list doesn't include any guys who actually got into the Hall of Fame. Mine does still. Mine includes a couple of guys who made it into the Hall of Fame despite only playing four or five years. But there are certainly tons of guys, and you'll highlight more than them than probably me, who could have made the Hall of Fame had they stayed healthy. Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm going with mine. Either that or guys that really would have had great careers, possibly Hall of Fame careers. I didn't put guys on the list that did make the Hall of Fame because, hell, they didn't need the extra few years anyways. But let's go ahead and start off with your number 10, Sam. Yeah, my number 10, I bounced back and forth in this one. I wanted to make it a more modern player, a more recent player. And I went back and forth between Ryan Chazier and Andrew Luck. And ultimately, I decided to go with Andrew Luck because he was a – Four-time Pro Bowl. He only saw action in six seasons during his career. He missed all 2017 with, I believe, some shoulder issues. Comes back, plays 2018. He's a Pro Bowler. People have him thinking he's going to be maybe an MVP candidate going to 2019. And lo and behold, immediately before the season, I think it actually got announced during a Colts preseason game that he was going to retire. And that was it for Andrew Luck. He never came back. He was done after 2018. And, of course, it was a, it was a buildup of injuries. There's everything about his arm in 2017. But also, he had suffered some, at least some lower leg issues going into that 2019 season that led to him retiring. Yeah, I'll give it to you. I still don't know that he retired. I think he was just tired of playing. I mean, he's a smart guy from Stanford. Wasn't even 30 years 30 years old yet. Why not get out when the getting's good and you've already got $100 million in your bank account? That's true. And they kept, let them keep his contract. Let him keep the money for that season, I believe. Yeah, so my number 10 is a guy that didn't get that shot, Tony Hunter. And he was one of the greatest tight ends in Notre Dame history. He was big, strong, fast, reliable hands. Tony was drafted by the Buffalo Bills in 1983. I think he was a top 10 pick. And he played for two years on a horrible Bills team. Luckily for Tony, he ended up with Los Angeles with the Rams during the 1985 season where they went to the NFC Championship game. He thrived. He hauled in 50 passes for 562 yards, four touchdowns. He helped lead the Rams to the 1985 NFC Championship game, a loss to the eventual Chicago Bears. Tony injured his knee and was only able to play seven games during 1986. And Tony was a unique guy that I think his talents would have fit with the tight ends of today. He was a guy that could be a deep threat as a tight end. And actually, I've gotten to know Tony. He used to do a Notre Dame show on the network. I've interviewed him a few times. One of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Uh, he was on with me and Steve Risley on Survive and Advance a couple times. But he was a great guy. And the story of his injury from the interview I did with him, which you can find on thegruelingtruth.com, was that he had a meniscus injury that I guess the team doctors said wasn't that bad. 
and he wanted to play like every professional athlete does. He thinks he's invincible, and he kept trying to play on it, and eventually he destroyed it. And the bad thing is it was a meniscus injury that if it happened today, he would have been all right a couple months after having surgery. I think that's the same story for a lot of these guys. If they had played during today's NFL when you have – greater medical technology, they would be able to continue playing their careers. They would continue to heal up and maybe be just as good, if not better than before. But a lot of these guys, when they got hurt and it was done, at the time, these injuries were considered career-ending. All right, number nine. I'll go with nine. Priest Holmes, Kansas City Chiefs. Now, Holmes' first two years in the NFL were as a backup, but starting in 2001, that changed for Holmes. He ran for over 1,400 yards, three consecutive seasons. He had 21 rushing touchdowns in 2002. It set the NFL record for rushing touchdowns in a single season in 2003 with 27. Holmes was amazingly on pace to break that record in 2004. He had an amazing 14 touchdowns in only eight games before sustain, sustaining a season-ending injury that would prove to be the beginning of the end of his career. But any guy who goes three straight years, 1,400 yards each year, and you know, 2008, before he got, or 2004, before he, before he got the injury, he was well on pace to do that again. And hell, he was on pace to score 28 to 30 touchdowns. So when you look at that, Priest Holmes was one of the best running backs I've ever seen. And the sad thing is, nobody seems to remember it. Yeah, there was a push a couple of years ago and they put him in the Hall of Fame around the same time as Terrell Davis. That never really panned out. But for, during the four dominant years of his career from 2001 to 2004, he averaged over 100 rushing yards per game. In a four-season span, most players, most players never even approaching that once. He did it in four years. And despite only being a starter for maybe four and a half total years of his career, maybe starting more than 10 games in four and a half total seasons, he still finished his career with over 11,000 yards from scrimmage. So that tells you just how good he was, how dominant he was during those peak years. And like you said, he was a, he was a three-time first-team All-Pro consecutively from 2001 to 2003. You don't see many backs who are able to do anything like that in their careers. Well, the difference between him and Terrell Davis is a Super Bowl MVP, an NFL MVP, and 2,000 yards instead of 1,400. I know, I know. It's not, it's not equal. It's not, I'm not saying they're both equal. but No, I'm not saying it's equal, but I'm saying this. I mean, with both guys, it's hard to tell them what they would have done if they'd have played more than really neither one of them had more than three or four healthy years. Yeah, no, they really didn't. I mean, you could say maybe Holmes had four. He did have one year with the Ravens maybe where he was fully healthy. And he kind of played a little bit there, but he really peaked with those Chiefs teams. All right. Uh, Lucas Trolley. Marcus Dupree was one of the greatest football talents of all time, but that knee injury was the end of him as a top guy. Marcus Dupree, I, I think, maybe played a handful of games in the NFL, but I don't even know if he, uh, he – to me, he would be one of the guys that injuries kept him from being an NFL player. And Marcus Dupree was a stud. I remember, I think it was the Fiesta Bowl in 82 or 83 – Maybe Lucas can remember, since I know he's a Marcus Dupree fan, where, I mean, he was overweight and seemed like he every time he touched a ball, he went for 50 yards. So I think with Mar Marcus Dupree, I think a lot of times he was his own worst enemy. I know he did have the knee injury, but before that, he also had a tendency to not always be in the greatest of shape. So Marcus Dupree, great call, Lucas. He's not on my list. Maybe he's on Sam's list, but he was a great talent. It uh, looks like Sam didn't have him on his No, he, he was selected in the 12th round. He might have been great in college, but he never got to that point in the NFL. Well, he was selected in the 12th round because, if I remember right, he went to the USFL first. All right. And basically, he was picked in the 12th round so somebody would have territorial rights to him. So he would have been a first-round pick. He was a great football player. Um, number nine, Sam. 
Yeah, number nine, we mentioned our including unfortunate situations where players die on this instance. So I picked Sean Taylor for my number nine. This was a guy who was 24 years old at the time when he passed away. I believe it was a home home invasion situation where he ended up getting shot and later passing away. But he was a two-time Pro Bowler at the time consecutively. He'd been a second-team All-Pro in 2007. And coming out on Miami, he did a little bit of everything for you defensively. He was an extremely versatile safety. And through the first four years of his career, we only played nine games in 2007, 12 interceptions, 305 tackles. He was, like I said, did a little better. He was a heavy hitter, too. He could play coverage. He'd come down and just knock you out. Some of the best highlights of his career probably are the heavy hits, not necessarily the interceptions. But he was such a versatile defensive back and passed yeah, away I, only 24 years old. I think there's no doubt he would have been a Hall of Famer. I think there's no doubt about that. I think he would have ended his career maybe as the best safety of all time. If not the best, he would have definitely been top five. He was a great talent. Played at Miami University, right? Miami of Florida? Yes. So everybody back then was really good at Miami of Florida. So I didn't put Sean Taylor on my list because I knew you would have him on just because of your age. So I, I let that go. I wanted, I wanted us to cover as many guys as possible here that maybe people had forgotten about. Um, number eight, Sam. Yeah, number eight, and this is one of the few guys I think we're going to have that we both have on our list. It's Priest Holmes for me. You already talked about him, so we don't need to go too deep into him. But like you said, if you have – as a running back, you extend that – what he was doing and had maybe five really good years to his career, five dominant seasons completely, he probably would be a Hall of Famer with five great years. Because even as it was, his career cut short with injuries and all that stuff. I believe it was a, a spinal injury that really kind of did him at the very end there. But even if he played, if he played out much longer, I think he would have been a Hall of Famer. All right, my number eight is Ricky Bell, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The thing about Ricky Bell is I don't think that he ever played healthy. Um, he died at the age of 29 of heart failure caused by dermatosis, I think is what it was called, or something close to that. And that disease left him weak, losing weight for the last couple of years of his career. Maybe in 79 he was healthy. This was a controversial pick because the Bucs passed on Tony Dorsett to get him. If the Bucs take Tony Dorsett, you know, 1979 during the NFC Championship game, who knows what happens. Now, Ricky Bell was picked by John McKay, who was his old college coach at USC. That was the reason he drafted him in 1977. And in 1979, Bell enjoyed his best season. He ran for 1,263 yards. He led the Buccaneers to the NFC Central Division title. It's the first time the Bucs had ever qualified for the playoffs. They actually won a playoff win or won a playoff game behind Bell's 142 yards on 38 carries, scored two touchdowns against the Philadelphia Eagles. The Bucs lost at home the next week to the Rams, 9 to nothing. And I remember, I think it was mid to late 80s, there was like a network movie that was made about him called The Ricky Bell Story, about his relationship and with one of his fans who also was sick at the time. And Ricky Bell, when you look at his career, I mean, it really makes you wonder what he could have done because those Bucks teams in the late 70s, early 80s, great defensive teams, they were just missing a running game after Ricky Bell got sick. And Bell was basically sick, I think, from 1980 on. And the fact that he died at the age of 29, a heart failure, is very sad. And the story of Ricky Bell is a story I think more young people need to know because this was a guy that was on his way to possibly being a Hall of Fame running back. Now, I think the Bucs were crazy for passing on Tony Dorsett because to me, Tony Dorsett's one of the greatest running backs that ever lived. But Ricky Bell was a damn good running back, and he would have been a multiple-time pro bowler, if nothing else, if not a Hall of Famer. But rookie, Ricky Bell is my number eight, Sam. 
Well, it makes sense. I mean, look what he did at USC. You can understand why his college coach or former college coach wanted to take him. He had almost 2,000 2000 rushing yards in 1975 with the Trojans, followed up by almost 1,500 the next year. So he was very dominant in his time in college. And he had finished in the Heisman voting, the top five in the Heisman voting twice. So he had two great collegiate seasons. And then he goes to the NFL and obviously it takes a little while to establish himself, but by, like you said, great year. And then everything kind of falls apart after that. All right. My number seven is Icky Woods, Cincinnati Bengals. He was the rookie of the year in 1988. He burst onto the scene like a comet through the night sky. That's some good words right there. I wrote that in my article. I figured I'd bring that up again. But sadly, his career lasted about as long as a comet. Uh, he had a great blend of size and speed that has rarely been seen in an NFL running back, especially in the 1980s. He became a national sports hero in just a matter of a few weeks because of the icky shuffle. And more importantly, he helped my Bengals go to the Super Bowl. So you got to give him that, too, because how how often does that happen? Twice. And he returned to play a few years sparingly. But the story of Vicky Woods is he, he was like a second-round pick out of UNLV. And actually, a couple years before that, when he played at UNLV, I think the starting quarterback when he was a freshman was Randall Cunningham. And Woods was not a starter at the start of the year because this was a Bengals team that already had James Brooks and Stanley Wilson. Stanford Jennings, who was really good, he returned that kickoff in the Super Bowl for a touchdown to give the Bengals a 13-6 to lead. And Woods didn't really get into the lineup until I think it was week four against the New York Jets. And once he got in the lineup, though, he stayed there. And him and James Brooks were a lethal combination. And Icky Woods was a guy that I really would have liked to have seen what would have happened if he would have got to play his entire career. And this is another guy. He tore his ACL 1989. I think it was week two against the Pittsburgh Steelers, a game that I might add the Bengals bludgeoned the Steelers 41 to 13, as they usually did during the decade of the 80s. That's why it was my favorite decade. But it's an ACL injury that if it happened today, maybe he misses a year and he comes back and he's the same. And it's sad. Icky Woods, one of the nicest guys you've ever met. Uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting him a few times. He had a son named Jermaine who was in high school who actually died of an asthma attack, sports-induced asthma. And he goes around the Cincinnati area signing and selling autographs to be able to give the money back to, I mean, the asthma, whatever you call it, the National Asthma Society or whatever. But he donates all the proceeds of that in the name of his son. But he's a great guy. And he was a great football player. It may have just been for one year, but that one year is a year people will never forget. Well, yeah, I remember seeing on on commercials a little while back. This is still a guy a lot of people know about. And it's unfortunate, but I think a lot of running backs during that era, ACL tears, MCL tears, any kind of thing to do with the knee, very difficult to repair that. And a lot of guys didn't come back to being what they were in the past. And we'll see from our list, a lot of these guys are running backs. Yeah, I mean, I've probably got at least another – two, maybe three. And I could have even thrown a guy like Kajana Carter who never even got to start his career, which is why I don't put him on the list. Same reason I didn't put Marcus Dupree because we really have no idea how good they were because they didn't even get a small sample to play in the NFL. Kajana Carter was two carries in a preseason game against the Detroit Lions and his career was done. All right, Sam, number seven for you. Yeah, and this is, I guarantee you won't have him on the list. So you did not put Hall of Famers on your list, but I put Kenny Easley here. And he was this guy who only recently got into the Hall of Fame. Within the past, I want to say, three years or so, he got yeah. in. But he'd been waiting for a long time. Former defensive player of the year who had to 
retire from the Seattle Seahawks after think seven seasons because there was having issues with his kidneys, I believe. He had like kidney failure. I think he failed a physical and he still uh, still blames on some of the medications he said the team asked him to take for it was issues. the medication the team's asking him to take. Yeah. It was it was it was I think aspirin. I mean, they, it was either Aspen or Ibuprofen where they had him. They, he got to the point because me and Matt Andrew Scavage, when we first started a network, he was one of the first players we interviewed. And they had him taking sometimes, he was taking 20, 25 a day so he'd be healthy enough to play. And it ended up, I believe, either affecting his liver or kidneys, which is what basically ended his career. But Kenny Easley, much like Sean Taylor, he only played six years. But Kenny Easley was ever bit as good as Ronnie Lott, I think. Well, yeah, he was a defensive player of the year and a three-time first-team All-Pro, so he hit that peak. He was one of the best, if not the best, defensive players of all time. And that's obviously why he's in the Hall of Fame. Ten interceptions and two of them returned for touchdowns in 1984, which is, of course, the year he won the Defensive Player of the Year award. So you have a career like that. This guy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He had to wait an unusually long time to get there. Yeah, he had to wait a quarter of a century almost. Um, the one thing I will say about him, though, he played in Seattle. It's Seattle outside of 83 when they went to the championship game. If you look at the rest of his time in Seattle, being he played for Seattle, Ronnie Lott got most of the coverage back then. Do you think him playing 10 or 11 years at that pace would have really changed people's perception? If he had won like another defense play of the year award, probably, but that really doesn't happen. You fairly rarely see guys win two of those. So probably not just because of the team you're on sometimes plays a role in it. And like you said, there are guys who get a lot of media coverage. There are guys who are great on small teams who don't get a lot of coverage. Like some Cincinnati Bengals players who aren't in the Hall of Fame. So it yeah. happens. So I, I think I see your point there. If Kenny Easley had played in a larger market team or on a better team that was winning at the time, maybe he gets in sooner. Yeah, it's just like this. Lawrence Taylor was maybe the greatest outside linebacker I ever saw. But what if he'd have been a Seattle Seahawk? Exactly. It changes a lot of things. When you move these guys onto teams that aren't succeeding well or just in small markets and not getting national coverage, it changes everything. All right. Who do you got at number six? Number six, I've got 10 too. It's not the one you picked, though. I've got Mark Bavaro at number six. And this guy came out, started his career very hot, two-time All-Pro in the first three years of his career. And he actually had a 1,000-yard seasons in 1986. But after that, he kind of peers off a little bit. He still played for a while. He still played up and through. Uh, 1994, but he changed teams several times at the New York Giants, and he missed the 1991 season entirely with a knee injury, and he missed half of 1989. He just was never the same guy that he was in the first four years of his career after that 89 season. Of course, that 91 season really took him down another notch. But Mark Bavaro, and my dad's grew up a Giants fan. Mark Bavaro was one of his favorite players. He always swears by him that if he'd stayed fully healthy, he would have gone down, maybe not as a Hall of Famer, but certainly as one of the better tight ends in NFL history. Well, I think that's the guy I equate him to, and this is small market, big market again. A lot of people do remember Bavaro, though. He had the Monday night catch against the 49ers where he dragged half their defense 20 yards. But the guy I equate him to, big market, small market, would be a guy like Dan Ross at the Cincinnati Bengals, who for three or four years was one of the top two or three tight ends in football, put up huge stats, especially in 1981, where I think he caught like 70 or 80 balls. And he was another guy like Bavaro that he took a massive beating because he was hard to tackle. And I think that that really shortened his career in the end. Yeah, you see, it happens sometimes. A lot of these older players, it's just the hits. I mean, even we talk about running backs, even guys like Earl Campbell take all those hits over and over again. Eventually, your body can't handle it all the time. 
Yeah, and Dan Ross is a guy who caught, I believe, 11 or 12 passes in Super Bowl 16, and that record stood as the most catches in a Super Bowl, I think, until Jerry Rice broke it in Super Bowl 23. Yeah, Dan, Dan Ross, I'm looking at him right now. He certainly had one or two really good years in there, and he did have 11 receptions for 104 yards and two touchdowns in that loss to San Francisco. Yeah, and I think the 81 season, didn't he have over 70 receptions? Uh, 71 receptions for 910 yards. Yeah. All right. My number six is one of my favorite guys to talk about, and that's Joe Delaney, Kansas City Chiefs. He was named the AFC Rookie of the Year for the 1981 NFL season after he rushed for 1,121 yards. And that 81 Chiefs team wasn't really expected to do anything. They just missed the playoffs as they went 9-7. and seven. It was the team's first winning season since 1973. His 1982 season was cut short by a detached retina. Unfortunately, between 82 and 83, he'd tragically passed away the story was he's in louisiana i think there was like five or four or five kids that were drowning and delaney jumped in the lake to try to save them he actually saved one or two of them the other ones passed away with him joe delaney didn't know how to swim but he saw kids that were drowning and he tried to figure it out and i mean joe delaney to me is a hero and if you look at the stuff he even did before that while in college and in high school uh, he's a guy that should be remembered not just for the football football ability that he had, but actually for everything else he did off the field. And the way he went out will tell you what kind of guy he was. Yeah, I believe we talked about Joe Delaney last year when we were talking about some legends that have been forgotten over time. Delaney certainly belongs up there for everything he did when he was alive, but also like the first year of his rookie season when he was 1981, ran for over 1,100 yards and produced over 1,300 yards from scrimmage. But then you talked about everything he did and how he tragically passed away at just 24 years old and tells you the kind of man he was. All right, my number five, another running back. Running backs are cursed. Billy Sims, Detroit Lions. Sims was a 1980 NFL Rookie of the Year. He came out of Oklahoma where they ran the wishbone. They were loaded at Oklahoma. You know, that was Barry Switzer's Sooners. And he ultimately ran for 4,400 yards, 37 touchdowns over just four seasons. So there you go. Average over 1,000 yards a season. And he was a great running back. And it was a number 20, you know, just like Barry Sanders. And the thing is this, not much difference between Billy Sims and Barry Sanders. Billy Sims was that good. And the Lions hadn't made the playoffs since 1970. Sims gets there in 80. and 81, they actually had a shot to make the playoffs. They played the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the NFC Central Division Championship in 1981. They lost a close game on a Jimmy Giles, who was the tight end for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He caught a touchdown pass late in the fourth quarter. They missed the playoffs there. 1982, the strike-shortened season, they made it into the playoffs. They got beat, I believe, in the first round of the playoffs by the Washington Redskins, who would go on to win the Super Bowl. 1983, he got them back to the playoffs again where they lost 24 to 23, where Eddie Murray missed, I believe it was like a 48 or 50 yard field goal that just went right, wide right at San Francisco against the 49ers. That Lions team was very good. So the fact that Barrett, Billy Sims was good enough that in four years, he got in his four good years, he got the Lions to the playoffs twice and damn near got him there three out of four years. I'll tell you exactly how good Billy Sims was. Well, yeah, getting the Lions to the playoffs is no small feat. And in that 83 playoff loss, he ran the ball 20 times for 114 yards and two touchdowns. So he was carrying them in that game. And for his career, I think he was a great receiving back. When you look at the receiving totals he put up during his – it was just five years. He had 2,000 receiving yards during that time and finished his career, again, five years 
with only with over 7,000 yards from scrimmage. So he really is producing at a high level and he had 47 total touchdowns. All right. Who you got at number four? Or are you at five? You're at five, right? I'm at, I'm at five still. I've got Jerome Brown here. And I think you had him on your list as well, but I've drawn. I got him much higher. I because he could have been one of the greatest that ever played the game. Yeah, he tragically passed away at 27 years old in a car accident, I believe. Two-time first-team All-Pro. He's coming. He's coming off a year where he had been one of the best players at his position in the NFL. He'd been a first-team All-Pro, and he had had nine sacks in 1981. He had ten and a half in 1989. So he was coming. He was really coming into his own there. Uh, Very talented Philadelphia Eagles defense, and tragically again. Guys like him, Sean Taylor, pass away far too soon. All right. Who you got at number four? Number four, I have Sterling Sharp. And I know Shan, Shan Sharp likes to say a lot of things on TV, a lot of which I don't agree with, but he does bring up the idea that his brother Sterling Sharp was even better than he was. And to some extent, I have to agree there because Sterling Sharp, during his shortened career, he only played, I believe, six seasons in the NFL before he had to leave because of a neck injury. But five Pro Bowls, three-time first-team All-Pro. And in those seven, I think it was six or seven seasons, he had eight, over 8,000 receiving yards, 65 receiving touchdowns. He led the league in receptions three times, receiving yards once, and receiving touchdowns twice. So we're looking at, yeah, it was a very shortened career. I understand that nowadays if you're a receiver and get in the Hall of Fame, you need to have over 10,000 yards. I understand that. But Sterling Sharp, still his peak, three-time first-team All-Pro in a very short career. It's very hard to overlook that. He had to have been on his way to being an all-time great player if he had just stayed healthy. Yeah, I, I think that's a great call by you. I didn't put him in there because you're younger. I tried to keep everything, you know, before 1990 for me. <laughs> so Sharp was over that borderline. My number four, another running back, William Andrews, Atlanta Falcons. Now, he was a four-time Pro Bowler in just six years. He gave defensive backs nightmares. He was a big bruising back which those guys usually don't have long careers. The thing is, you can look at him, and his career lasted about the same length as Earl Campbell, but Earl Campbell got a lot more notoriety for it than William Andrews did because you had to love you blue. You had the Monday night game in 1978 where he goes crazy against the Miami Dolphins. But in 1983, Andrews had his best season. He finished second in the NFL in rushing with 1,567 yards, second in rushing yards per game, 97.9. 59 receptions for 609 yards. This is a big bruising back that can go catch the ball. He also finished second in yards from scrimmage at 2,176. A knee injury early in the 1984 season led to his demise. But this is a guy that 1980, that Atlanta Falcons team may have been the best team in the NFC, and they just blew it in the playoffs. They had a, I think, 17-point lead at the start of the fourth quarter against the Dallas Cowboys. Danny White led one of the great comebacks in playoff history, and the Cowboys end up beating the Falcons. I think it was 28-27. to But Williams Andrews was a great running back, and this is a team that also, towards the end of Andrews' career, you had Gerald Riggs, you had Lynn Kane, because I know the 80 team was mainly William Andrews and Lynn Kane, and Lynn Kane, number 21, was a great third down back. But my number four is William Andrews. And he played like five dominant years of his career. And during that time, he amassed over 8,000 yards of scrimmage in just five seasons. So it tells you how good he was. And he was a good receiving back. You mentioned that. He had 81 receptions for 735 yards. as a big bruising back in 1981. So, again, this is before you get to the era where you have to have these dual threat backs. And it's common now in the NFL. But yeah, but even now, too- most of those guys are, you know, Derrick Henry's not, you know, putting up the receiving yards no. like that. 
No, there are guys who aren't getting near that level. So you got guys like William Andrews are able to go out and do that at a high level in the early 1980s. Shows you just how versatile he was. All right, my number three, I'll go ahead and give it now because mine was Jerome Brown. I mean, this is a guy who was an all-pro in 90-91. That Eagles defense in 91, even though I don't think they even made the playoffs in 91, they went 10-6. and six. Um, Randall Cunningham, I believe, got hurt, and I think Jim McMahon ended up being the quarterback for a lot of times. But his life was tragically cut short June of 1992. But, I mean, can you get a better defensive line than Jerome Brown and Reggie White? I mean, they were both forces of nature. If you have a coach outside of Buddy Ryan that would have cared about the offense, and Jerome Brown doesn't die, you know, that Eagles team could have given the Cowboys some fits. Yeah, they definitely could have. It's just the fact that, like you said, the offense was not treated. Don't get me wrong, they never would have beat them, but they gave them closer than the three touchdown losses they'd get in the playoffs against them. Well, yeah, and you have Reggie and Jerome Brown, your defense. It's very hard to beat that group. Yeah. Um, number three, Sam, who you got? Number three, I believe you'll probably have this guy on your list as well, because I, I definitely think you've the same. You view him the same way I do. It's Tony Bozzelli, who played in the mid nineties to the early two thousands, but really had his career shortened. He only played three games in two thousand one after coming into the NFL in nineteen ninety five, and never played again after two thousand one. But for a five or six year stretch, he was arguably the best offensive lineman in the NFL. Made five Pro Bowls, was three time first team All Pro consecutively between nineteen ninety seven through nineteen ninety nine. And is still a guy that's on the Hall of Fame ballot, but just has not been able to get past and get his way in there. Maybe now Alan Fanica's in the Hall of Fame. Things will open up for Bozzelli next year. All right, we got Michael Scott Scott, who puts in, this might be a stretch, but Kenny Burrow was a talented wide receiver, double zero. He ran about 4-2 into 40. Houston Oilers, nagging injuries. My only problem with it, he did play 11 years. Um, yeah. And I think most of those years, he played at least... 11 games. Kenny Burrow is a very underrated guy, though. I think in 1975, the Oilers were not very good before that. I think 74, I think Sid Gelman was still the coach. 75, Bum Phillips came in and entirely changed the culture of that team. And the interesting thing about Burrow, from what I remember, is he had a thousand receiving yards. <clears throat> His thousand receiving yards were on like 50 catches. So that's over 20 yards per catch. And then his next couple years, I think he was close to 1,000 yards on 50 catches. So this is a guy when healthy, they routinely average like 18, 19 yards per catch. <coughs> and even with the injuries, I think for his career, he was well over 15 yards per catch. 1979, you know, he had those injury issues flared up. The 79 AFC wildcard game, one of the most brutal games ever played, Denver versus Houston. Houston beats him 10 to 7 at the Astrodome. Kenny Burrow gets hurt. Dan Pastorini gets hurt. Um, Earl Campbell gets hurt. And it's Houston goes without maybe their three best players outside of Robert Brazil and beats the San Diego Chargers in San Diego. And the sad thing for Burrow is that was pretty much it for him. I mean, he played in 81 and he had a good season, but 80, he was out pretty much the entire year, if not the entire year, from what I remember. 81, he had a good season. I, I think this. I, I think that there's too many 11-game seasons there. But I think when we talk about all-time great players that were really affected by injuries, I think Michael Scott makes a great point on Kenny Burrow. And I got no problem with Kenny Burrow being on anybody's list when it comes to this. Yeah, I do think, like you said, though, he played 11 or 12 seasons in the NFL, which is probably the difference maker here. 
It's because he didn't have a career that got cut short after four or five seasons. He played a long time. Yeah, but how about that? Yeah. I, I, I think where Michael is going with this is he very rarely played healthy. And if you look yeah. at the numbers he put up, if he would have been healthy 16-game seasons for 10 years, he would have been a Hall of Fame wide receiver. All right. I'll take your word for it. He was that good. Just go watch some watch some films. You can go on YouTube and get all kind of old Houston Oilers stuff. Yeah, I know, I know you can, Mike. I know you can. Okay, I'm just making sure. I mean, you youngins are good with technology, but sometimes you miss something. My number two was Tony Baselli because I think Tony Baselli was – he was often compared to Anthony Munoz. I don't think he was as good as Munoz, but Munoz, I think, is the greatest tackle in NFL history. I think Baselli is one of the five best tackles I've ever saw. His career was only 90 games. He's a guy that should be in the Hall of Fame. An injury to his shoulder ended his career – but Tony Baselli gets way undersold. This is a guy that, you know, in 1995 gets in the league. And by 2000, he's named all decade for the 90s. Yeah, he was only there for four or five years. He was only there half a decade and still comes out there and basically beats out a bunch of more seasoned veterans for a, a spot that everyone wants to have because of how good he played. All right. Number one, who you got, Sam? It's actually my number two still. My number two oh, and number one. And they're both big names. So I'll give him. I'll give him back to back here. It's Terrell Davis is number two and Gale Sayers is number one because I knew you weren't going to put either of them on they're your list. They're both in the Hall of Fame. They're both front. I know it's both like front runner picks here. They're both kind of obvious selections, but I felt like I had to put them up here towards the top. Okay, you want to expound anymore? Because sure, I, I I'll expand on it. I'll expand. I'll expand on a little bit. I think it's you know, possible that Terrell Davis. Could have went down as maybe the greatest running back that ever lived if he wouldn't have got hurt. Well, yeah, Terrell Davis is very rarely brought up in conversations for the top 10 running backs of all time. But if you look at the first four seasons of his career, I mean, during those first four seasons, he ran for 6,413 yards and 56 touchdowns in 61 games. So to be able to amass that in four years is incredible. Of course, after that, you know, things start coming undone. He has the MVP season. And in the final three years of his career, he runs for just over a thousand yards and has to retire after 2001. So obviously things kind of went down very quickly for him, but if he had kept it up for even one or two more years, I think you're talking about a guy who goes down as one of the 10 greatest running backs of all time. All right. You want to expand about gray? Or, hey, you want to expand about, you know, Gail Sayers? Cause I mean, this yeah. is what I want to know. I haven't asked this. We have not played this game in a while, but Sam, have you ever seen Brian's song? Oh boy! You know I should not. I should have just left him off the list for this exact reason. No, I have not seen Brian's song. Sorry, you need to see Brian's song. All right, it'll be on the same list of movies I haven't watched from now until whatever. Eventually, I'll get to it. I know, but I figure Probably if not. I keep bringing it up, eventually it'll beat you down, and you'll just be yeah, sitting. Eventually, I'll be so discouraged, I just have to watch it. It's only seventy minutes long. It was a network movie. It doesn't take any time. I know you guys have short uh, short attention spans nowadays. But they're not that short. You can watch a 70-minute movie. I could probably make it through it. <laughs> but see, I'm in just, my 50s, so a 70-minute movie is borderline of me falling asleep, but I can probably make <laughs> it. But I can always pick back up the next day or whenever I wake up from my nap to watch the end of it. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. You got a point there. Maybe I'll – no, I'm not going to watch it, Mike. I probably won't. Do. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm you have to it, watch but... it. You have to watch that and Hoosiers. You've never seen that or Hoosiers. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I guess I'm behind culturally a little bit here. I'm a little culturally uneducated, but I'll yeah. work on it. Yeah, I mean, come on. All right. Um, my number one, 
I think we all know where I'm going with this since I'm a Bengals fan, is Greg Cook. Hmm. And Greg Cook basically was named the 1969 AFL Rookie of the Year. He averaged over 18 yards of completion and over nine yards per attempt. Uh, this is a guy who a shoulder injury basically ended his career. And Cook, like I said, was drafted out of the University of Cincinnati. He threw for 1,854 yards. And the thing is, he only really played three games healthy. And in game three against Kansas City, he, put, he feels a pop in his right throwing shoulder after being tackled by linebacker Jim Lynch. He missed the next three games. And, you know, due to limited medical technology at the time, a torn rotator cuff went undiagnosed. Despite this, he played the rest of the season through for 1,854 yards. And the thing about those first three games, this is a Bengals team that was an expansion team the year before that only won two or three games. And they come out at the start of this year with Greg Cook. And they beat the Kansas City Chiefs and the Oakland Raiders. And, you know, it was the Chiefs, Raiders, and Jets as the three best teams in the AFL during the decade of the 60s. And the Bengals beat the Chiefs and Raiders back-to-back. Um, his 9.411 yards per a pass attempt and 17.5 yards per completion are rookie records that still stand today like 50 years later. He was the UPI's choice for the AFL Rookie of the Year. And I, I actually got to talk to Greg Cook about 20 years ago. And when we talked about this, he told me he took quarter zone shots. He played in pain because there was no way to fix this. They did all kinds of surgeries, but no, none of them would work. And, and the rotator cuff, from what I was told by him, was something where it just kind of kept deteriorating over time. So he played the rest of that year in pain, but he still had arm strength. But after that, he didn't have any arm strength and he only finished his career with 1800 passing yards, 15 touchdowns. But the thing about him is this, um, the guy who replaced Greg cook was Virgil Carter, which Bill Walsh was the offensive coordinator and Virgil Carter didn't have the arm strength that Greg cook had. So they had to change the offense. That is where you get the West coast offense because Virgil Carter and Sam Weish didn't have the arm strength. And I know I got probably four or five opportunities to talk to Sam Weish over the last two or three years before his death. And he said Greg Cook was by far better than anybody he'd ever coached. Now, Bill Walsh also said that. And the thing that's impressive is Bill Walsh coached Kenny Anderson and Joe Montana. And Sam Weish, you know, coached Joe Montana. And he was with the Bengals when Kenny Anderson was there. So this is a guy that when you've got people saying he was the best he's ever seen, and it's a guy like Bill Walsh and Sam Weiss saying it, that's what really makes me pay attention to it. And in the Cincinnati area, if you find people 60 years and above, they all wondered what would have happened because those Bengals teams, 1970, they made the playoffs. They didn't have the offense to hang with the Colts. They played the Dolphins in 73. They played the Steelers in 75. And you had a lot of years like 74 where they went 8-6, and six, 76 where they went 10-4. and four. What kind of a difference? Kenny Anderson was a great quarterback. But what kind of a difference could it have made if Greg Cook would have been the quarterback? Hell, if you fast forward, in 1975, Paul Brown retired, and he picked Bill Tiger Johnson over Bill Walsh to be the head coach. So it's possible that if the Brown family wasn't so damn stupid and Greg Cook doesn't get hurt, Super Bowl 16, the Bengals could have been playing somebody with a veteran 
33-year-old Greg Cook being coached by Bill Walsh. And if Bill Walsh is the coach of the Bengals from 1976 on, eh, I, I don't think there's any doubt that the Bengals at some point in that next 10 years would have won at least one Super Bowl. And it really could have changed the face of NFL history just if Bill Walsh gets hired. But then on top of that, if Greg Cook was as good as Bill Walsh said, how could that have changed NFL history? Just that one little injury. The 49ers wouldn't have as many Super Bowls as they do now. Greg Cook came in as a rookie on the league in passer rating. As you mentioned, he got glowing reviews basically everywhere everywhere he went. All the major players in the sports world at the time, Bill Walsh said he was the most uh, – he was going to be a, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time before the injury. And Mike Brown said Greg was the most talented player they've ever had with the Bengals. So those are glowing reviews from guys in power who were there during his time and had a chance to see Greg Cook at his peak power. but. You know, you yeah, I wonder what could have been, but unfortunately for you Bengals fans, you'll never know. You know what? Shut up. <laughs> At least we've got that. At least our broken down quarterback was 51 years ago. You got one now. That's true. <laughs> it's an ongoing situation in Pittsburgh. All right, Sam, anything else we want to discuss? Were there any other players that just missed your list that you might have wanted to put on but didn't? Uh, I looked at – well, I, I didn't take Greg Crooks. I knew you were going to talk about him, but Dwight Stevenson from – uh, the Dolphins missed the list. He's, the Hall Hall he's in the Hall of Fame, but he could have been. I mean, he's he's. <laughs> I know it's a little boring, right? That's why I didn't put him on the list. But he is one of the five, if not the top three, greatest centers of all time. All right, I'll throw in David Pollock from the University of Georgia. He was a Bengal for a few games. I'm just kidding, because actually, from what I saw, I didn't think he was very good, and he'd have been a bust anyways. I hated to see him <laughs> break his neck, though. But he got a good job after it, so that's all right. Yeah, he's doing pretty good right now. He's making a lot of money. All right, guys, I want to bring up the old-time boxing show, Power Outage, again. Shut it down, I promise. Sunday night, a look back at Holyfield and Foreman with me and boxing historian Christopher Sheldon. That'll be at 7 o'clock Eastern. Me and Sam will be back 1 o'clock Monday with the NFL show. And get this, we have a new show that will we'll start Monday night at 7 o'clock Eastern, the College Basketball Weekly Show with Steve Risley and myself. Hey, there you go. Well, and see, I, it's a little different now because we're getting to the point where March Madness starts. I love me some March Madness. I haven't watched that much basketball yet this year. I'm going to start watching it this weekend. I'll study up. I'll know what I'm talking about. But I, I love March Madness. You know, March Madness is great. It might be the single best sporting event we have right now. Well, and we'll do the March Madness show after they announce the brackets, and you'll have to come on with us because then you'll want to do it because you're an attention whore, and that show will get people to watch. <laughs> sure, Mike, sure. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and we're going to wrap it up. Make sure you check out Passive Purity at PassivePurity.direct. Right now, a special two-month supply of CBD for the price of one, $75. Make sure you check out PassivePurity.direct. I use it myself. It's the best CBD out there. You put it under your tongue. It time releases over 12 hours, so it stays in your system pretty much all day long. So make sure you check them out at PassivePurity.direct. You can follow Sam Teets at SamTeets33. You can follow me at Grueling Truth. Go to Rockfin, where you can sign up a free email account to get all of our stuff there, plus an occasional special that you can't get on the website, GruelingTruth.com. Also, go to our Facebook page. Sam, we're getting close to 120,000 followers now. That almost 20,000 new followers since the start of the new year. Yeah, that's not too bad. But actually, it might be since the start of February. 
Yeah, it's really, it's really peaked. We got a lot recently. Right. All right. So I want to thank everybody for checking all the interviews, all the shows, all the videos out over there. Make sure you go there. So for now, for Sam Teets, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been watching and listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legends speak.